Hello and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard, pastor at Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. And today we have the last episode, or whatever you want to call what we're doing here, on the Gospels. We have been in the Gospels for quite some time, I think six months, a little over six months. I'm recording this way ahead of time, so schedule's a little off. But uh, this is the last one in those four Gospels before we move on to the book of Acts and spend, I think, five weeks in the book of Acts. And then we just have a handful of weeks to cover the rest of the New Testament. Oh my goodness, what will I do? Time will tell, my friends. But today, we are in the Gospels, actually going to go to John chapter 20, the second to last chapter in John's Gospel, to look at Jesus's interaction with Thomas. But before we get to that, there's a little bit of interaction that happens before. So let's jump right into John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. After the resurrection of Christ, which was a physical bodily resurrection. That's not what verse 19 says. Sorry, these are my own comments setting up verse 19. (laughs) Because I'm realizing in the last episode, I think we were just talking about the crucifixion. Well, there was a resurrection. That's very important to know. Physical bodily resurrection. We'll get into that more. Now you have the appearance to the disciples. So John chapter 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut while where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Well, let's stop there because there's plenty to see, right? Plenty to comprehend, chew on, think about for a long time, okay? Well, um, let's focus on, because a couple of these things we're going to come back to. So let's just focus on the last two verses that I just read. How about that? Verses 22 and 23. You have this very interesting thing where Jesus breathed on them. Which in our day and age, depending on where you live and whatever's going on in the world, and you might be thinking, oh, shouldn't he be wearing a mask? <laughs> Jesus was not wearing a mask. But not only that, he intentionally breathed on his disciples. And when he did this, he gave them this tidbit of, of a command, receive the Holy Spirit. So breathed on to the disciples, saying, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, that's just very, very interesting. Perhaps one thing that will come to your mind as you're considering this is, didn't the Holy Spirit come at Pentecost? And the answer is yes. The Holy Spirit did come upon the disciples in Acts chapter 2, the event of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. They were gathered together, they were praying, and the Holy Spirit appeared and filled them, 
and started from that point forward permanently indwelling them, empowering their ministry. All of that was going on. So uh, that's pretty important, right? And we'll get to that, I guess, next week. Wow. We'll talk about the day of Pentecost. But this is before that. This is some 50 days before. And you have Jesus breathing on the disciples and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. Well, I think you have a couple of things going on here. You have this transition time because Jesus has not yet ascended to heaven and the church hasn't begun, but he's resurrected and they're seeing the glorified resurrected Jesus. You have the disciples who are saved. I mean, they've, they've placed their faith in Christ, yet it, they're still before the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit will come upon them and give them power to be witnesses for Jesus. And so that's it's kind of like this weird in-between time. And so two things happening. One is Jesus breathing on them, I think, communicates something in and of itself. It's the same word the, in the Greek that's found in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament when it says in Genesis 2-7 that God made Adam and breathed into his nostrils, breathed into Adam the breath of life. It's a creative act that God is breathing into man. And so I think on the one hand, you have Jesus signifying that his disciples are new creations in him. He's breathing onto them, signifying something of creation, that they are new creations. But also, they really are having some sort of interaction with the Holy Spirit in that moment. In the present, they are to receive the Holy Spirit. And it's almost like the down payment before the next down payment. Because we're told that in this current dispensation, in this time, believers do receive the Holy Spirit in this life as the down payment, the guarantee of what is to come. Well, they haven't yet had that experience of receiving the Holy Spirit, and I don't think that comes until Acts chapter 2. But what they have here is at least some sort of provision, whether it's just for this day, whether it's for the next 50 days leading up to Pentecost. They have this provision from Christ himself of receiving the Holy Spirit's guidance. And in some way, it's different than today. I don't know what, because we don't have much. This is the only account that we have out of all four Gospels of this happening, and so we don't have a lot of detail. But John thought it was important, under the inspiration of this same Holy Spirit, he thought it was important to include this. And here we just have, I think, an amazing provision of God that in this transitionary period, they not only have the resurrected Christ with them for the next several weeks, few weeks, But they also have now, in some way, the ministry of the Holy Spirit as a preview of what is to come. And even the Holy Spirit's ministry today is a preview of what is to come. So it's like they got a preview of the preview. Now that sounded really deep and theological, didn't it? (laughs) Well, you know, work it over. If you come up with something that's better, let me know. But that's kind of where I've landed on that. Another interesting thing happens, though, right after this, where Jesus has received the Holy Spirit, and then, verse 23, he says, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And conversely, if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. 
The Roman Catholic Church teaches that this is where Jesus has given authority to intermediaries to pronounce forgiveness or not, which is a little startling. Uh, but anytime you give a human the authority to forgive sins, he also has the authority to tell people that they're not forgiven. Think about that for a while, huh? Well, is that what Jesus is doing with this one verse? Notice it is just a singular verse. Uh, you know, you could probably cross-reference this with a couple other places in the New Testament. I'm thinking Matthew 18 would probably be the key place. But um, phrase like this, you just got this one verse here in John 20, and you're saying, what, what can we make of this? Well, I don't think that all of a sudden Jesus now is teaching that he has made a human institution that has the authority of God in their creaturely judgment to pronounce forgiveness of people's particular sins in particular cases that they would then have assurance of their salvation and assurance of pardon based on the judgment of creatures. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think Jesus is saying uh, pastors or priests or apostles are now to use their creaturely judgment to give individuals assurance of salvation whenever they hear the details of what they've done and determine whether they've done enough to earn forgiveness or merit forgiveness. I don't think that's the case, all right? It has to be something else. And uh, the examination of the Greek is interesting here. The verb tenses is interesting. Let me pull the text back up. Where it says in verse 23 that people's sins, for some people, their sins have been forgiven. And have been forgiven is how it's translated here in English. It's one word in the Greek. It's the past tense version of forgiven. And it's in the perfect tense. Those who have been forgiven by God... Okay. I don't think this is talking about they've been forgiven by man. I think this is talking about God has forgiven them. And the perfect tense means it's a past completed action that has a continuing effect. So God, at a point in time, forgave them and has a continuing effect. And what you have at the start of the verse here is the recognition of Jesus' disciples that this has happened. If you forgive the sins of any, if you pronounce that someone's sins have been forgiven, that their sins have been forgiven them. Not that they now, again, in some sort of creaturely judgment, become the catalyst for forgiveness or the causal agent of forgiveness in their lives, because only God can forgive sins. That's consistent throughout the entire Bible, Old Testament and New. Mark chapter 2 is a good study on that. Only God can forgive sins. And so you have the apostles having a ministry of forgiveness where they go about, I think, personally forgiving people, but also proclaiming the opportunity for people's sins to be forgiven. And when they see the fruit of their gospel efforts in people turning to the Lord, people confessing Jesus as Lord and crying out to him to be saved, they can pronounce forgiveness. They can say, your sins have been forgiven. They can give someone the assurance of forgiveness, not through their own judgment and putting on that person hoops to jump through or determining a system of merit or whatever, but because they are ministers of the gospel, when someone responds to the gospel in faith, the apostles, and, and perhaps it's you know possible here that Jesus is saying 
they would have supernatural discernment in those moments to affirm someone in the faith. But the apostles have this ministry of proclaiming forgiveness and then letting the believers know that they truly are forgiven. You see this in Paul's letters all the time, for example. He would write to a church that, uh, well, take the Corinthians, for example, a church that he was used to start because Jesus is the one who builds the church. Jesus used Paul to start the church in Corinth. He was there for 18 months. And he writes a letter to them assuring them of their salvation. Second, Second Corinthians chapter 1, he tells them that the Holy Spirit is their down payment, to tie this in with the last verse. He says the Holy Spirit is your guarantee of what is to come. He's letting them know they're on their way to heaven. He, as an apostle, as a minister of a new covenant, as a proclaimer, a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, he is letting them know that they're forgiven. And it is so. They've, they've expressed genuine faith in God, and they've been forgiven by God. And I think that's what's being said here, is that the apostles now have this ministry of proclaiming and assuring the forgiveness of God for those who believe in the gospel. And we can see this in the book of Acts, this book that we'll be looking at for the next few weeks, when we examine the content of the sermons that were preached by the apostles. In Acts chapter 5, it says, Peter and the apostles, so Peter with other apostles, answered, we must obey God rather than man. You know, they've gotten into uh, some tiffs, Peter and the apostles, because the earthly authorities didn't like that they were prioritizing Jesus in their lives. And they said, well, look, if you're giving us a choice, obey you or obey God by proclaiming Jesus as Lord, we're going to proclaim Jesus as Lord because Caesar must bow the knee to Jesus. And they didn't like that so much. But anyway, Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. And he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel. And there's our phrase, forgiveness of sins. So the content of their message here is that Jesus the resurrected Christ who was crucified on our behalf. He's been exalted to God's right hand as a prince and a savior, all leading toward the forgiveness of sins. That's what Jesus was talking about in John 20. Peter was there hearing that from Jesus, and here's him living it out in his preaching. We see Peter doing this again in Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 40. He's here preaching to Gentiles. And he says that God raised Jesus up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. So uh, Peter is here recounting the event that we were just reading in John chapter 20. And we'll talk more about this, like the eating and drinking stuff here in a moment. But his mind is going back to John chapter 20, and now he's proclaiming the gospel, and he says, verse 42, and he ordered us to preach to people. He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. 
of him, that's Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes, that's a key word, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. I think this is just a very key passage to explain what's going on in John 20, 23, that here he is proclaiming forgiveness based on the gospel. He can give assurance to these Gentiles even that if they believe in the gospel, their sins are forgiven. Because if he proclaims that their sins are forgiven based on their response to the gospel, then their sins really are forgiven. The apostles had the authority to proclaim it. The apostles had the authority to discern and assure in their preaching and in their letters That's what's going on. That's the ministry, the new covenant ministry of the apostles. And one more, this is the apostle Paul preaching in a synagogue. He's preaching to Jews here saying, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So even though Paul wasn't there in John 20, 23, he's been saved and been called to be an apostle And now he's proclaiming the same message as the other apostles, forgiveness of sins. And through him, Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Now here in this new covenant, in the gospel, you are not only justified by faith, but you are now sanctified by faith. You are going to grow in this life. You're going to grow closer to God through faith. You are going to be able to walk in liberty by the Spirit who has set you free, and you'll be able to mature and grow in the grace of God through faith. Because your sins have been forgiven, your sins have been ultimately forgiven in Christ, you are now a saint if you believe that, and God works in the lives of his saints. What an amazing privilege to be able to proclaim that. And I think that's what's at the heart of John 20, 23. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So the apostles, as they go out proclaiming forgiveness and they see the response of the people, if they shake off the dust of their feet because the people have rejected them, and that happens in the book of Acts, well, their sins have been retained. But if the people respond with faith and the apostles accept them, embrace them based on that faith, what they're seeing, discerning in the moment, their sins truly have been forgiven by God. All right? Wow, that's just a lot. There's a lot going on, and we haven't even gotten to Thomas here in his interaction with Jesus, so we better get there. Let's go ahead and jump back into John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Okay, doubter. (laughs) Verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger, and see my hands. And reach here, your hand, and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. 
Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see me and yet believed. Pretty famous interaction there. Uh, Surely you've heard of the Doubting Thomas. That's where that comes from, is right here, that passage. Well, we have two times in our passage, from the first part I read and then this part I just read, two times Jesus showing up in a room when the doors are shut. How does that happen? Well, let's look at it uh, again. It says, and I'm pretty sure John includes these details on purpose. Verse 19, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were, and they were, the doors were shut because they were afraid of the Jews. They didn't want anybody breaking in and killing them, or, and they were just hiding. Doors were shut. Probably the shutters were closed and everything else. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Well, after the disciples have this interaction with Jesus and then tell Thomas, You missed it, dude. We saw Jesus. He was there. And Thomas is like, Yeah, whatever. You guys are crazy. Well, eight days later, you got the same thing. It says in verse 26 that the doors were shut. And Jesus stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Does the same thing again. He gives the disciples the same experience that they just had uh, eight days ago, but this time with Thomas. But it does beg the question, what kind of body can do this, right? Is it that Jesus is now a ghost or what? What's going on? Well, Jesus is not a ghost. Uh, and there are many reasons for that. One is what happens with Thomas here in just the next few verses, right? He touches Jesus. He physically handles Jesus. And Jesus has a body that still has these wounds. So that kind of rules out the idea of being a ghost that you can just stick your hand through or something, right? If you can imagine movies or cartoons that portray such a thing. So um, he's not something like that. He's not just like this hologram. He had a real body that it says he could eat and drink. I mean, we read about that in the Gospels, and Peter talked about that, you know, in Acts chapter 10. We ate with him, we drank with him. So you've got physical stuff going on. He was not just this image floating through the air. He was a real body and still is real human body. Yet, he is showing up in a room without opening the door, <laughs> right? Um, and it's not like their their houses were so poorly constructed that he slid through a couple of slats or something, you know. That's not what's going on. I mean, they were on, they were locked down fearing for their lives. So they were just airtight, locked down. And Jesus shows up in the midst of them twice, two times. So that tells us a little bit of something about this resurrection body. That this resurrection body is similar to the body we have now in that there's some physicality to it. You can contrast this with the concept in John 4, 24, when Jesus tells the woman at the well that God is spirit, right? There, quite clearly, we're talking about 
something that's categorically different than a material physical body that we have and that we experience. We know that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, that there's just something uh, spiritual to the substance of who God is. And we, we could say immateriality. It's beyond material, beyond atoms, beyond matter. I actually have a whole debate about this that I did. The first ever moderated public debate I did was with a Latter-day Saint on the topic of, is God immaterial? Not meaning irrelevant, but meaning in physical substance, is he immaterial? So that might be something you want to watch. You could check that out. Well, clearly Jesus has a material body here, and yet this glorified body is now able to do things that the unglorified human body uh, just can't do. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose from the dead with a physical body. He walked out of the tomb with the body they put in the tomb. And when he ascended into heaven, we'll look at this next week, he ascended with that physical body and he retains the physical human body. Um, But the body's glorified now. In resurrection, a resurrection to a permanent state, so not like Lazarus and John 11 or the bodies that came out of the tombs that we talked about last week at the crucifixion, those people all died again. They, They rose from the dead with another version of that same corruptible body. It was still corruptible. Yet here, the resurrection body is incorruptible. Jesus is rising from the dead in a glorified state. So even though it's a physical body, it no longer has some of the limitations that the body had before. For instance, it can show up in a room where the doors are locked and shut. Pretty cool. Pretty amazing stuff. So um, that's how I explain what's going on there, and I love pointing that out and dwelling on that because it's just really, really interesting. But let's talk about Thomas for the rest of our time here because there are three things I want to point out about this interaction that Thomas has with Jesus. But first, uh, the interaction he has with the disciples, where we pick up on the nature of Thomas's unbelief. Notice that he puts stipulations on believing. He says in verse 25 to the disciples, unless I see his hands and unless I put my finger into the place of the nails, and unless I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So here Thomas has made some requirements for his believing in the resurrected Jesus. Now this is really, really bad. Really bad on Thomas. Because Jesus said multiple times on his way to the cross that he would rise again. He talked about the resurrection. He declared that it would happen. And here, one of his disciples says, I don't believe that unless, you know, I get more than just Jesus's word on the matter. (laughs) Perhaps uh, you've kind of had that view in life that you're not going to believe in this stuff unless you get more than just what the authoritative God of the universe has to say. See how stupid that sounds? Thomas was demanding that he get a, a sign that he could handle. He was requiring evidence before he would believe. Very, very bad. 
because we are to take God at his word. Whether we're talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, we take God at his word. And here Thomas is rejecting the blessing of faith by saying, nah, I need I need something I can put in my hands. That will be the de- determiner for me and whether or not I believe. Well, in grace, Jesus gave Thomas what he wants. So he shows up and he tells Thomas, because he knows, I mean, Jesus wasn't there in this interaction with the disciples up here, but Jesus knows all things, right? And so he shows up and he says, hey, Thomas, I bet you'd like to reach here with your finger, wouldn't you? (laughs) Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand, put it in my side. Check me out. You know, kick kick the tires, so to speak. What do you think? And I love how Jesus says this. Again, a command. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Reject your rejection of faith, Thomas. Reject your, your, reject your rejection of the resurrection. Be believing. Embrace me, Jesus says. And... Look at what Thomas says. My Lord and my God. So the nature of Thomas's response now is really profound. I mean, we're talking about only five words in English, and two of them are the same, and one of them's a conjunction. <laughs> but Lord and God, that, that's Thomas's response. You are my Lord, you are my God. When he says Lord... That, of course, has reference to ownership. He's calling Jesus his master. You are my master. You own me. And then he says, my God, attributing to Jesus absolute divine authority. And Thomas here isn't becoming a polytheist. He's not saying, ah, in addition to the Father, you are now a second God. That is not what Thomas is saying at all. But instead, Thomas is recognizing the true nature of the Son of God as God himself. He declares the deity of Jesus Christ. And notice that Jesus doesn't turn him down. Jesus doesn't say, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. You're getting a little carried away, Thomas. He does not say that. He embraces this profession of faith, this proclamation of truth. He embraces it, and he allows it to happen. And John writes this down. Because John believes the same thing, and he wants you to confess the same, that Jesus is both Lord and God. And so that's the nature of his proclamation. But now let's look at the nature of his blessing, because that's what this ends on. Jesus says to him, well, because you have seen me, you've believed. And he phrases it as a question here, where Jesus is asking so, so because you've seen me, now you believe? Is that it, Thomas? And he says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Who's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about guys like me. I've not seen the risen Christ, and I'm one of many through thousands of years of church history who has not seen the risen Christ, yet we've believed. And there's a blessing associated with that. Now, certainly, Thomas was blessed too. He's not saying, now, Thomas, you're left without any blessing whatsoever. I don't think that's what he's saying. But 
There is, of course, a greater blessing for those with childlike faith who do not demand a sign before they will believe. I mean, isn't it amazing that God is so gracious that He is faithful to even save those who demand signs? Because God has given us plenty of evidence for His existence and for what He's done in the gospel. He's given us so much. And yet, even though He does give evidence and He saves those who, who require evidence, He says that there's a greater blessing. Blessed, rather, are those who have not seen and yet believe, who come to him on the basis of hearing his word and trusting his word with a childlike faith. We are not to put demands on God for what we require to obey or believe. He is God, and we are the sheep of his pasture. That's Psalm 100. We are his creatures. We are the sheep of God's pasture, and we must take God at his word. And in so doing, we're more blessed than Thomas, one of the disciples who stuck his hand in Jesus's side in the resurrected, glorified body of Christ. Are you someone who takes God at his word, or do you kick against the goads? Do you fight back a bit? That's something to think about. Because God has called you to believe what he has said, to trust in his word, to have faith, childlike faith, in his gospel that he's given to us in the Bible. All right? Well, thanks so much for listening. Hope this has been helpful. If you have any thoughts or questions, feel free to reach out. May God bless you today.